Hi, Matthew. Welcome to episode 103 of the Performance Advantage podcast, where we bring sports science to the people. With myself, Dr. Will O'Connor, and Dr. Matt Miller, sports scientists. We are researchers, coaches, educators, and uh, wannabe athletes ourselves. So we have experienced from all angles over the last decade. And this one's coming at you from the researcher point of view, because I've just finally gotten one of my PhD studies published in the Journal of Science and Cycling. And that article is the topic near and dear to my heart. Chronic carbohydrate restriction does not reduce endurance capacity in men and women, Matthew. Low carb for the win. Or more accurately, not for the loss. Yeah, I see it's worded a few different ways there, but first, Will, first, thank you for uh, bringing me on board with your paper. Keeps me relevant in the research space and yourself, obviously. But uh, congratulations, actually. It's a nice feather in your cap to get another research study out because, as we know, these reviewers can be difficult. And I don't mean that in a nice way. (laughs) at all because uh, getting a paper reviewed is a horrible horrible experience where people drag you through the weeds just because that's the way it's always been done in science this is another episode actually where i complain about publishing research but yes it's good to good to see that well Uh, we could probably i'll talk to some points as we go through the paper okay uh, about how it probably changed for the positive but really that's good really matt we're like what I want to go over here is, is the hard peer-reviewed research, published research that I can, you know, results that I can give to you around your training and your low-carbohydrate experimentation, self-experimentation, experimentation, what's going to work, what's not going to work, and what has been shown in the lab. So let's get into this is, it. This is good. So no bro science. But we're going to bring in some bro science, definitely, because we were both participants in this study. Yeah, it's well, I mean, I have, endless, I have, like, yeah, years of of bros, anecdotal bro science. So, Beauty. Here we go. All right, well, so I have your paper open. It's actually free to download. We'll put that in the description. So if you want to listen to a podcast and read a paper at the same time or do them separately, you can do that. So this is in, it's an open access journal. This is a good journal. I like it because what it, it ain't, it's called the journal of science and cycling. So obviously their little uh, subtitle there is breakthroughs in cycling and triathlon sciences. I have, I think two other papers in this journal. And what I like is that they actually make the paper available. It's just a chill flex. Brag. Um, yeah. My first one um, is my most downloaded, you know, it's about FTP. So go download that. It's on my research gate profile. You can find me. <laughs> but what I Don't like is that. Don't laugh at your own lame joke. Oh, no, I, so I'm laughing. People have already I'm laughing skipped. at my flex, man. All right. Keep going. What I like about this journal is that anybody can go on their website and download these papers. That's cool. So that's a, I don't get it. Right. We, um, for those who aren't in the like research publication 
academic world, a lot of the times you have to pay to publish um, articles. And then if you don't need to pay, the actual journal will cost you money. Like, or, um, yeah, will charge you to read the articles. Yeah. So and- you normally you would pay if you want to get into an open access journal. Yes. And that's these like, I don't know what I'd call them, maybe speed journals where you can publish anything and the review process is light and you pay money and it's published basically. So that's what academics do for their career. Yeah. Uh, and so it's then expensive. You get, it's, um, oh yeah, like 1500 bucks, two grand, 3000, depending on, yeah. the, on the journal. Um, and then you get into this like weird murky hamster wheel thing where it's like if i want to get a promotion at my academic institute i need to get publications and so then i can pay to get publications and they'll publish me and then i can get my promotion i get more research funding which i can use to pay for like these journals and then no one ever reads it yeah yeah it's funny it's It's funny um, but (laughs) the other side of it is then what you what you really want to do is get in these good journals and a journal is ranked by its impact factor, which is how many times the article has been cited. So if you're actually doing research in an obscure field, it's probably not going to get cited that much. But that doesn't mean it's not important research. And I ran into this problem for years and years with all my breaking research because no it was cares. very new. Yeah, no one cared. Be- because it's not about, let's say, cancer or critical power, which people are citing over and over and over. So the impact factor of my article might be lower, even though it is proper research, 100% novel, never been done before. It's not going to get And then no one journals. wants to publish it because it's going to affect the impact factor of the journal. Yep. Yep. So these uh, open access ones are great. I did get some of the breaking stuff into the other journals, but I would prefer to just can keep going through in the Journal of Science and Cycling. And your review process was pretty robust. Like it they was, smashed you on some yeah. things, man. And this has been, uh, so I graduated uh, from, we graduated from our PhDs along with my wife um, in 2018, right? And so it's 2022, it's four years on, I'm just getting this published and this is not the first time. And one of the the biggest difficulties for me is, uh, although it's in like the crux topic, right? Something everyone wants in their journal, low carb exercise science, (laughs) like, let's go, here we go. Um, I'm, my study isn't a training study. And so there's the sports science aspect of it. And then it isn't a hard, uh, diet intervention study. And what I mean by that is, um, I combined both to create a best case scenario. So we'll just go through the actual study design. Um, not lame. Like I'll just yeah. yeah, no p values, please. Yeah, yeah. spare us well, that, these that, fine not details. In the, um, study design, though, in the, research, yeah. in the results. <laughs> so, uh, I got, I wanted to create a best case scenario for a low carb diet and um, affecting or um, influencing performance. And so, what I thought was okay, low carb, it's a win. Like, I am just killing it on low carb. This is when. I was self-experimenting and just lost a ton of weight and just felt amazing. So there's something in this. Now, looking at through the research, we know it works, right? We know carbohydrate restriction, whether it's through fasting, uh, whether it's through diet, um, yeah, 
whatever um, your mechanism of reducing carbohydrates, it, it increases fatty, ac fatty acid oxidation and all the retooling of the muscle fiber to be able to oxidize more fat. So we know that. And we know that after that can happen within like five days and the retooling um, persists in the face of carbohydrate restoration. So look, go low carb, eat some more carbs, and you still have all the benefits. Okay, how long those benefits last? Not sure, but they persist, right? And so that's part of like my um, uh, low carb and carbohydrate restoration. What do I call it? Um, carbohydrate super, super compensation protocol pre-race. So what I'll do is I'll um, 10 days out, I'll cut carbs for like eight days. And then two days out from my race, I'll, I'll load up on the carbs just to get a bit of a boost there of um, glycogen and also fat metabolism anyway so that's that science is there so we're but then when we came to the testing people were like nah it doesn't work doesn't work and i was like it does work it does work what they're doing is they're doing these really short adaptation period windows so five days three days um seven days and i was like that's not long enough to adapt to a low carb diet like all the people i've helped athletes and um some of my pilot studies people just we couldn't get the results straight away people feel like rubbish uh and then if they did go longer, so they went out two weeks, three weeks, maybe four weeks, we got um, a massive increase in adaptation, but then they'll do like this 20 minute time trial or they'll do like repeat sprintability. Uh, and then conversely, they'll do like this real short adaptation window, seven days, and then they would do the, the um, like four hour, three hour time trial marathon performance. And so for me, I was like, look, what I believe needs to happen is a long window, four weeks adaptation, so four weeks of a diet, and then an ultra endurance time trial, five hours. And I was like, this is, and then Matt, on top of that, carbohydrate loading before the time trial. Sounds like a well thought out design. So, and as painful as it sounds as well, I'll say that. Five hour time um, trial inside. Yeah. So, so what the study design ended up being was you did uh, a two hour fixed intensity ride on, let's just call it the weekend, Saturday. All right. And then um, after that, you went through a carbohydrate loading protocol. So, that two hours was fasted. So, I took all of my measurements because it was fixed. Um, so, you rode at 65% VO2 max for two hours, um, fixed power output, completely controlled ergometer so you know like a um like a twenty thousand dollar wahoo kicker <laughs> essentially and uh and i took all these measurements so i could compare those throughout all of them you did that again fasted two hours at, at week two and again at week four um and then yeah so then the next day carbohydrate loaded and then you did this five hour time trial uh how enjoyable was that matt um not great because the work load was fixed and the only way to alter your power was by increasing your cadence. And it was just a pain. This is just like the nature of those bikes, wasn't it? But um, it was, it was, it was painful, you know, the riding for five hours inside eating Snickers at set intervals and drinking a juice. I didn't know. I don't remember what that was, but we watched a lot of movies. I can remember that. And we not, we not only had to do it like for each diet, we had to also do a familiarization. 
which meant we did three five-hour time trials. You did, and six fixed, two-hour fixed intensity. That was worse because that doesn't even matter if you change your cadence or anything. The power is absolutely set. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, those were hard as well. I remember actually one of them, I don't even think I finished it. I was just so dead, so dead with the low carb. Oh, yeah, yeah, one of the two-hour ones. Yeah. Ah, That's when I thought you were sick. (laughs) <laughs> we hadn't known each other that long uh you're so uh, mad. but then i introduced you to fish and chips yeah i had fish and chips after my first five-hour time trial yeah that was good first first ever fish and chips uh, a great way to recover so so that was yeah um self-paced time trial so not fixed intensity you could kind of yeah it sounds weird that you just increase your cadence to increase the power output but the way the amount of um, variance you'd have in your power output across a time trial, which was the work equivalent of five hours at 55% VO2 max, which equated to a power output, which you can equate. It's to probably energy. not really worth getting into that part. It's a really small part of the, the, the point is like you still had to go as hard as you could for five hours. And if you do a sprint in five hours at any point, well, there's no point in that. So you shouldn't have done it anyway. So, uh, yeah, but, and so during that you had, um, you were having, oh, sorry, I have to have a look, but it was between 40 and 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour. You were carbohydrate loaded and you went in. So if we just ignore the, the baseline time trial, you went in either having done four weeks of high carb or moderate carb, because I wasn't allowed to call it high because greater than five grams per kg per day. Thank you, reviewers, was not considered high uh and then low carb less than two grams per kg per day of carbohydrates so you had four weeks of low carb or oh four weeks of high carb going into the event into the um, time trial and uh each athlete did both they were randomized so you could have whatever on the first one you had a minimum five week washout between the two so this pretty intensive study and i had 13 people go through eight men and five women, which is another really novel aspect of including women in the, in the cohort. Um, yeah. Hey, don't forget a really important part of what you did with this study is that you controlled training because we did the exact same training uh, in both conditions, whether it was high carb or low carb. Yeah. So we're, so then when we yeah, get pulled into like, where would I be able to get this published? People, when they're doing training studies, they're talking about, you know how hard training studies are, man. You can't allow any variation in the workload that could potentially influence the performance output for, um, because you're trying to you know, compare high-intensity interval training versus low-intensity steady state or something like that. So if there's any variation, yeah, it could just, especially when you're looking at like percentages and you know, training zones or something. And I didn't do that per se. Like I did control um, all uh, a, a baseline level of training, but then some triathletes were doing some swimming sessions and some were doing, you know, some running and we just directly replicated that. But between you and me, Matt, we did different training across that yeah. time period, but I did the same training as I did as a crossover. Um, and so that makes it hard. And then with the diet side of things, I let that uh well i guess like a self uh 
what how would you say that the diet um because i didn't restrict or control every single food type like i provided food parcels and just pretty much fixed those carbohydrate intakes um and monitored protein intake so it was 20 percent on both diets of total calories uh but i wasn't like oh you have to eat these this many minerals or so many vitamins and so they definitely varied across across diets um you know between just as it would be in a normal diet anyway. and that's what i wanted that's what i really wanted but they got pulled up and i like, even just just last week before getting this published i had to insert a little comment um within my discussion saying that uh the timing of carbohydrate intake has been shown to affect glycogen status which can affect the uh adaptation or influence on fat oxidation rates so i had to include that because i didn't control timing like the exact time or window within which you ate carbohydrates and relative to your exercise how did that reviewer comment make you feel when you first read it well, I rebutted it initially and it was persistent. <laughs> uh, well, so usually they just leave it. Especially anyway. Um, yeah. So like that's the extent of stuff you have to, you know, go through, uh, which, you know, when you initially read these comments, when someone's like, you're, you're an idiot and everything yeah. you've done is wrong. Yeah. And then you read it and you're like, actually, this is making my paper better. And when I got this final reviewer, because I, I went through three and then the other one didn't reply. So they'd send it to a fourth one with a whole new set of eyes, mm. a whole new set of problems. And Matt said, look, they're not trying to be a dick. They don't hate you. They're just trying to make your paper better and it will be better for it. But they are trying to be dicks as well. No, I don't. Yeah, some are, but I don't know. Uh, in the end, I have a far better paper. Yeah, you know? and yeah, this yeah, process, yeah, yeah. this process, which, uh, which makes scientists and published scientists and um, PhD scientists not just PhDs, but definitely that level is the level of uh, critique and point of view you have on a body of work. Like, so when I went into this, I was like low carb. Here it is. I'm going to bust the wall down. I'm going to show that this is absolutely oh, just the, the pinnacle of performance and the study is just going to... You were a bit be, cocky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't say that after these results. Let's get into the results. Uh, because in the end, first line of my results, there was no main effect of diet or sex on time to complete the workload time trial okay. no difference almost but no mm. uh no significant difference what are we looking at for performance time to complete right matt how long does it take you to run a marathon that's what we care about and that did not significantly change between diets and so i had to eat my words i had to yeah i had to look at the data as stringently as possible and you can't lean either way you just have to say what it is um and, but Matt, what is significantly different and positively so was that absolute power output, so the average power and watts per kg relative power output were better on a low carb 
and there was an interaction between the diet and the sex. So women specifically produce far more power, significantly more power, and relatively so, watts per kg, on the low-carbohydrate diet. So, so what how- you're saying is that um, generally what happened is we lost body fat yep. and or improved power with low carb. Yeah. And so how can you improve power, but not improve time? Well, the significance is very close, but also pacing profiles adjusted a little bit. And then overall, how those power outputs related to time is, um, yeah, is a little more complex inside than it is, uh, than it is outside. Um, and so that's one, you know, caveat is that we did this inside. So how would that operate? You know, how would those performance times look if you were going up a hill? Because, you know, significant improvement in watts per kg is, is really good. And an absolute power output, if you're doing a flat time trial and aerodynamics frontal resistance and everything's the same, well then, you know, potentially you, you go faster. And if you're a little lighter, maybe there's less air resistance. Uh, but regardless, what is important and what um, is in the title of this paper is that low carbohydrate or carbohydrate restrictive diet does not reduce performance in men or women. You know, if I'm scrolling through Google Scholar looking for an article, I'd be like, hmm, do I even want to open this one and read the abstract? Because <laughs> that's all anyone does usually. Not for proper science, but most people will just read the abstract. Why that kind of a title? Hey, just want to let you know that if you're really enjoying what you're hearing today, Will and I offer some sports science courses that count towards CEUs on Training Peaks University. So we have fundamentals of running with a power meter, fundamentals of mountain biking with a power meter, an introduction to exercise science for endurance coaches. And that's part of your level two certification for Training Peaks. So check those out on trainingpeaks.com, or you can also check out performanceadvantagepodcast.com where you can get CEUs for USA Triathlon in those same courses. Why didn't you just say like significant improvements for women, uh, significant improvements in body composition, something more like to grab my attention? So the initial title was... Uh, where is it? Carbohydrate, chronic carbohydrate restriction improves endurance capacity and body composition in men and women. Now, I wasn't allowed calling it that because I didn't improve endurance capacity; it maintained, and, and okay. primarily because time was my primary measure and my primary hypothesis. Okay, was that it would improve time to complete. That's, that's what I was measuring. That was what the whole study design was around, and it didn't. It maintained. Uh, and then body composition wasn't part of my hypothesis per se. Like it was all around improving performance. And so to title it something that was almost tertiary within my results or my actual findings and my med. My methodology for measuring body composition using the BIA, not the best, not the best to throw that in the title of your article. Uh, this yeah. is, it's, it's like you say, it's click, it's clickbait really. 
Yeah. Because for research clickbait, right? Because they're going to yeah. look and they go, or oh, biological impedance analysis. Like, have you gone down to bloody, you know, anytime fitness and jumped on one of those machines for a hundred hey, bucks? Hey, hey. <laughs> Ours is far more expensive than those, but still, I, I take that on the chin, you know, not like I wasn't doing a DEXA. I wasn't using a bod pod. Like I did attempt to use those things with time, time restrictions, just way too hard. Um, so yeah, I, like I re- reported it all in my, in my um, data, but really, so, so that's like the main results, Matt, but some of the super interesting ones, uh, what I'd say would be like the RER, no, I was just looking at that one that ratio. So figure six on page eight for those reading along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Read along, read along podcast. Right. So this was interesting in that um, on in every single scenario. So when you're going um, from a fasted state to a fed state or carb loaded state, regardless of low carb or high carb, your carbohydrate oxidation rate increased. Okay, so whether it was just baseline, so Matt, you're just coming off your, whatever you eat, Matt, you, you bacon. Talk, yep, bacon. at that time you were fairly into bacon. Um, so whatever you're eating, you came into the lab, I tested you fasted, overnight fasted, and then I, you did your carbo load, tested you at rest again, and you were burning more carbs. Okay. And then the same thing happened on low carb diet and the same thing happened on high carb diet. Uh, so, so you, depends how you want to look at that. Um, increasing like eating carbs increases your rate of burning carbs or um, not or overnight fast reduces your rate of burning carbs. So there's, it's somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, and then on the low carb, you burnt less carbs in both scenarios, both fasted and carb loaded. So that's really important. That's really um, crucial to this performance puzzle in that, you know, where, where that persists, I don't know, but I know um, Louise Burke did two weeks and it was the, the carbohydrate burning increased, but not to the extent of if you were uh, just eating your general diet or a general high carb diet. So you're still preserving glycogen, preserving carbohydrate more than you are um, on a high carb diet when you're on a, on a low carb diet. And that's why I like that um, carbohydrate restoration protocol, glycogen supercompensation. Uh, and then, um, yeah, what that has correlated in is uh, improvement in body composition, a loss of body fat across everyone, men, women, and then, you know, statistically significantly across both sexes um, compared to both diets, right? So interestingly though, Matt, is that the men lost body fat, significance about a body fat compared to baseline on the high carb diet as well. Oh, right. Right. And uh, this leads to... um, you know, an important talking point in my discussion, because a lot of my my whole thesis, my whole PhD was around metabolic flexibility and endurance performance. So metabolic flexibility uh, refers to the um, the ability to uh, 
you know, switch or maximally utilize your energy conversion pathways to match the demand and fuel substrate availability. Does that make sense, Matt? Sure does. All right. So what I'm saying there is I can take away all of your carbs. You can still perform reasonably optimally, especially over, you know, long durations. I can fill you up for carbs and you'll just burn more carbs. Right? Super. And when you don't have metabolic flexibility, you can dramatically reduce your capacity to perform when carbohydrates aren't available. And that, Matt, is a scenario that we find ourselves in in ultra endurance racing a lot because we're exercising for hours. And then if we haven't timed our nutrition properly or we've just you know, completely forgotten to eat, we're going to run out of carbs regardless of your intensity. And if you're not metabolically flexible enough to buffer that loss of carbohydrate intake with fat oxidation, you slow down or you bonk or you hit the wall. It's the only uh, option. And so around this, what I found from this research was that in the face of two drastically chronically different diets, four weeks that men mainly operated the same, but women significantly changed uh, in their, both their um, body composition and their performance. And what this showed to me and what I put as like a novel discussion, I guess, is that women aren't as metabolically flexible as men. So you may have heard the saying like, oh, women burn more fat. Like women are naturally better fat burners. That's why they do better over long distance events. Um, and while that's shown to be true as a comparison between uh, like habitual, natural, you know, carbohydrate-rich diets, what is what I guess is not so true is when you remove carbohydrate from the diet, women's fat oxidation rates don't significantly change. So it's that at, not at rest, but like habitually, just naturally, women are going to have elevated fat oxidation rates compared to men, right? And this is just in the, in the wild. But then when we restrict carbohydrate, men can just keep going, right? They can just keep burning more fat. Like we can just pull more carbs out of their diet and they can just burn more and more fat. Um, and on the, on the like converse, the flip side of that is we can also feed men more and more carbs, more carbs, more carbs, and they'll just start burning more and more. I recorded some of the highest carbohydrate and fat oxidation rates in men during my study because of the chronic adaptation window. Whereas women just sit in this far smaller bandwidth. So, and that's what I hypothesize is due to a reduced metabolic flexibility compared to men. So that when you're trying to, um, uh, you're trying to apply these recommendations or these diets to women, they may not react as positively and more so um, when you're trying to do high carbohydrate with women, you're potentially overfeeding carbohydrate, which can follow on to uh, weight gain. Whereas when you restrict carbohydrate, and now I'm not doing a ketosis diet, right? I'm doing two grams per kg per day. So if you're you know, a 
60 kg woman, that's 120 grams. That's, that's significantly higher than other carbohydrate restrictive diets generally are. Um, but still, as I showed in my results, they had the achieve, you know, the desired outcome of adjusting fuel utilization. When you're not, when you're not going as aggressively in terms of the keto side of things, you can remove the, I guess with the, um, like the, the really, when you're on a really, I'll rephrase this, when you're on a really high carb diet as a woman, you're potentially overeating carbohydrates. So when you restrict the carbohydrates, you're not necessarily restricting carbohydrates, you're just eating a more appropriate diet. Uh, and then, so, yeah, probably listen back to the episode we did with Mickey Willardin in terms of women and females and carbohydrate restriction for more advice there. But definitely, I'm not seeing any of my data to suggest that women operate well on a high-carb diet. Will, you're obviously very knowledgeable in this topic. So if anyone wants to know what to eat for breakfast, they can just email you at will at audit. Just get that you on your website. But uh, I think I can just imagine the internet uh, warriors getting their feathers a bit ruffled during basically everything you've said so far. Because we did this, you did this eight years ago, like kind of at the peak. This is when this started and it went on obviously for a while. This was at the peak of the low carb crusade because what we're mostly hearing or a lot more now is we're hearing less about fasted training. And for what it's worth, I don't prescribe much fasted training anymore at all or much low carb training for mountain biking in general is obviously different ultra endurance performance is a lot different um but generally what the trend is is to do a lot of really high carb training like oxidizing like 100 grams per hour at endurance intensities during training which is that's a lot a lot of carbohydrates it's crazy it's yeah keep going yeah um so we, no one's really talking about low carb. And I think like so many people now are against it. Like it's the worst thing that you could ever do. Do you think? Well, I don't think that's the worst thing you could ever do, but I know people do think that. Right. Yeah. Well, Obviously with yours, you showed that some aspects of ultra endurance performance can be improved, especially body composition, which for a lot of people, especially age groupers and weekend warriors, that is a significant performance. Uh, it's, it's holding them back for their performance. So that could be improved. But I, what do you have to say for the people who are writing angry comments on the internet right now about this article you just published? Uh, well, they're going to tease out something that's like so arbitrary and like, shows a complete lack of understanding of study design or something along those lines. Um, what would I say to the haters? Uh, I guess I'm not, I'm not trying to force anything on anyone. <laughs> this research was really about me and trying to increase the body of knowledge. And it's just like there for you to interpret and utilize as a resource in your own uh, research and discovery of 
what's going to work for you. So what I've shown here is that across like a really long period of time, you can eat either diet and your performance will most will be similar. For some people, women especially, you're most probably going to improve on a low carbohydrate diet, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, it, you could go either way. Um, one thing I'm just looking at, Matt, is uh, caloric intake, right? So calories. All right. So what, this is. Comp- tell us page and figure, please. Oh, yeah. So that is uh, table two, along. page nine. Okay. Uh, and this is, uh, so obviously, like I was monitoring everything, you know, Matt, you remember you to diligently record everything you ate for four weeks. That was twice. painful. That was plus, painful. Um, plus the 10 days leading in so I could compare habitual diets. Anyway, so the overall average on the, on the moderate or high-carb diet was 2,796 calories. And then the average on the low-carbohydrate was 2,530 calories. Obviously, um, a non-significant difference because the variance was so large. But it's still uh, 266 calories less on the low-carbohydrate diet. Now, this is really interesting because uh, I didn't control caloric intake. I didn't control diet outside of carbohydrate at all. And Matt, if you said, you know, if I gave you a low-carb diet, which I did, I guess. (laughs) So I said, like, here's bacon, here's cheese, here's butter, here's cream. Here's everything, like avocados, oil, put as much as you can in. What are you thinking? Uh, what am I thinking now or what might I have been thinking then? Maybe then I was thinking, no, that's going to make me fat. Oh, that's what I thought. When I really, I really went in with an open mind, I was like, there's no way I can eat cheese and bacon and eggs for breakfast and then have like cream in my oats for, for lunch or breakfast and then have just like a full tin of coconut cream in my curry at night. There's no way. Yeah. There's no well, way you know, I can do that. And then what happens is you just, at four weeks, significant, like, well, not significant, but like on average, 266 calories less you eat. So that, and yeah. that did, and that's one of the, another reason I can't like fully claim the body composition change because they ate less. Oh, right. I mm-hmm. see. You know, one of the things that I found doing low carb, because I did this off and on quite a number of times. Oh, cause I got you to do one of my keto studies as well. Yeah. Which the keto uh, supplement ones, bro, you need to publish that one to be honest. But what I find when you're doing low carb is that you just kind of run out of things to eat because you're like, yeah. well, I don't really want any more nuts. So I'm just not going to have anything. So there is that benefit where when you're doing a high carbohydrate diet and you're not restricting calories, basically anything's fair game which for me means anything's fair game. Oh, well, everything is fair game, (laughs) everything in the house. So that's the approach that I generally took. Whereas low carb, like you're just kind of sitting on the couch feeling this ketogenic niceness. And when you're sitting there and maybe that was more on the ketones, but you're just not going to get up and go eat chips. So, well, this, so Matt, I'll give you my, Practical applications. Is this what to eat for breakfast? (laughs) A high fat, low carbohydrate diet should be considered an appropriate nutritional tool 
for most for both male and female endurance athletes. Although the incorporation of a low carb diet does not appear to cause restrictions or reductions in performance, its application should be tested during non-crucial periods of competition, i.e. off season. So what I see this as, Matt, as you have just um, talked through around like getting so bored of the diet, like it's so boring after a while, you just, and it's, it's super satiating. So you don't actually get to eat much because you are directly fueling what the body needs. Um, I see it as a tool in my toolbox, right? So I see it as, as uh, a body composition or weight reset uh, or diet reset where you go, yeah, two grams per kg per day. There's my limit. There's my, there's my line in the sand. Can't cross it. And so, yeah, you go, you, you want to eat your whatever Doritos and have a bottle of Gatorade. You can't. So you just don't. Yeah. <laughs> Cause no one needs that. Sorry. No one needs that. No one, no one no. needs Doritos. Uh, or Gatorade, and, unless you're like actually training properly and racing, not to recover <laughs> from your jog. So yeah, that's that's where that's where I see the the low carbohydrate thing, and that's where having spoken to uh, a lot of people in the industry, pro cycling teams, pro cycling coaches, scientists, uh, head heads of like high performance programs they are using low carb as a tool in the toolbox that they apply at various points in time to yeah especially for athletes that respond really well some don't but you can't be on one side of the fence being like low carbs everything like and you know body composition everything but in actual fact like you could equally have a professional athlete who's like a vegan (laughs) You know, which vegan low carbs are almost impossible. You can't have any animal products. Um, but as I showed, it's, it's the most important point is the metabolic flexibility and the ability to utilize uh, whatever fuel source is available for optimal performance to supply ATP. Um, but yeah, that other comment you made about the carbohydrate ingestion rates, you know, there's one paper just came out 120 grams an hour. Yeah. I couldn't believe, remember when 90 grams, I got to change all my webinars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was some previous research. I know you were involved in doing it, looking at fructose, sucrose mix or something like that. I think it was at 60 grams per hour. Yeah, we were, no, we were 90. Okay. uh, 80 to 90. That was a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. I was like, this is, this is a lot of, this is for a half Ironman. So we did two half Ironman, um, one with just glucose and one with fructose glucose. There's like a hundred of us or 50 of us. And this is in the real world. It was a um, Nestle funded power bar study. Does power bar still exist? I barely, I don't. I don't know, but I saw Cliff Bars being acquired for like 2.9 billion. Just oh yeah. Anecdote, yeah. You know, it's like Cliff Bar started making dog food. I was like, is this dog food? Cause it, <laughs> Cliff they, dog. Do they just use the normal bars? <laughs> they just rewrap them. I'm sure. <laughs> Just the old <laughs> ones. <laughs> uh, but we had to have bars, drink, and gels. And uh, like 90 grams is almost four gels an hour. Well, that's what 
goo was recommending on their packets that's for one every 15 minutes which Does is a lot though? to carry because yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah i've yeah. got one and it says one every 45 and i'm like well that's nowhere near enough well they're how are they gonna they could sell three times as many if they were <laughs> <laughs> well they said 15 minutes before the start and i was like you would yeah you would say that get off the grass um <laughs> uh well that's like the best strategy do you i don't no, I, I don't i don't but um yeah. Yeah. I can't believe we're at a hundred people say 120 grams, you know, some of this Morton stuff with the hydrogel technology. Uh, oh yeah. With the gas, improved um, gastric clearing. So just to touch yeah. on that Morton, if you've seen it, you have to have seen it because they're just more 10, more 10. That's how they spell it. M-A-U-R-T-E-N. More 10. Yeah. I don't know. You can say it your way, but that's how it's spelled. If someone's trying to Google Morton. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they have encapsulated the carbohydrate in this kind of gel technology. And so when it hits the acidity in your stomach, it, it capsulizes around the carbohydrate, the glucose, and it allows for a, a swifter transportation out of your stomach into your digestive tract for um, faster absorption and less GI distress and less um, like osmolarity concentration issues. Research, I read some research. I can, again, it's similar to mine where like you can read my research and depending on what side of the fence you are on, you can go, you can jump up and down. See, see, it doesn't work. Low yeah. carbs, not even, it's not even worth it. On the other side of the fence you go, Told you, look, low carbohydrate is not going to make you any worse. And then these guys <laughs> lost body fat and improved what's per kg. Um, and so the same thing was with the that hydrogel stuff where it's obviously able to work, but scientifically based, they haven't shown, you know, significance like this is night and day. Yeah. Well, dude, the one of the guys that I work with, Jimmy Smith out of the US, he was using that stuff. He showed it to me. It's like, do you think this is good? I was like, that's a lot, man. I don't know. But he tried it and used it to train for Leadville. And he had a great result at Leadville. He was 19th. And he's a gravity racer. So, yeah, we, we're generally using higher carbohydrate now. And especially because most of the sports that we're doing, they're not five hours at a relatively steady pace. You need to oxidize carbohydrate. It's kind of like your rocket fuel in a way. But we do, still do, like, maybe this is a good way to sum it up. And this is just my, maybe non-ex, I'm on the paper, so maybe I can claim it, but um, some of the adaptations that you're looking for with low carbohydrate diet interventions are the same kind of results that you'll see with appropriate endurance training, right? And these, this is one of the things that we talked about a lot uh, when you were doing this. And this was one of the arguments that some of the non-low carb believers had is that, well, eating a low carbohydrate diet, you're just trying to get the same kind of effects that you would get from training at all. And doing endurance training is high rates of fat oxidization. Yeah. So I don't know where that leaves us on the argument. Well, um, Emma, so my wife, she did a PhD with us and she um, did polyphenols and the anthrocyanins and stuff and is around pomegranates right i think that they're, they're back in vogue because my mum was here on the weekend she goes emma pomegranates i just read something you know superfood blah blah 
She's like, and oh, I was I like, wrote that. Um, well, you could just train more. <laughs> She's like, we, and, and that's kind of what it came down to when all these studies that we did, Matt, all the stuff uh, that we did in the lab, the f- on the really fit people, everything had less of an effect because they were so maximally adapted to their training to like, like, especially when you're looking at professional athletes, it is their job to be everything uh, it, in terms of like biomechanical, physiological, uh, biochemical, like psychological, everything's like directed at being a, a beast. Right. And then you go and you go, well, I'm only, I not only allowed, I can only train three times one hour a week. Look, look, ladies, look, men, load up on all of the recommendations because you're probably going to get a pretty big effect uh, due to your inability to be able to train. And a lot of these things have like, you, yeah, going low carb, faster training when you can only train like three days a week is going to have a really significant impact because you can't train 10 hours a week to get the effects that someone could. So you might as well fast track them with a bit of uh, pomegranate juice, beetroot juice, faster training, high carbohydrate intakes. <laughs> You're going to really ruffle some feathers now. I think we should call it there. And if anyone wants to argue with you, they can hit you up on Instagram because that's a great place to argue. It is. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's specific specifically why i'm not on twitter all right so at dr will o'connor and at mtb underscore phd is where you can find us on the gram um they link to our facebook account so if you're a boomer hit us up on the fb um and uh i will put a link to my paper in the description please click on it show me some love otherwise you can google chronic hydrate restriction does not reduce endurance capacity in men and women All right. Till next time, guys. Thanks for listening. See ya.